You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on this Friday, the 24th of September. And we're, we're um, well into the year. Welcome and thank you for joining us for another hour of, we hope, joyful macroeconomics. Hello, Kevin. As always, Anne, you're the person who is doing the the diligent interviewing and researching. Who have you dug up for us this week? I'm so excited this week to be talking about how you look at environmental issues through the lens of macroeconomics. You know, this is a topic that has been on my mind for quite a while and I keep thinking we're going to have a look at it and then I get distracted on other things. And as you know, Kevin... There are a lot of denominations in the Church of Economics and I got into economics through one of those denominations known as Modern Monetary Theory or MMT. And there's also this other heterodox bunch out there of economists known as ecological economists and I've been really curious about what they're up to. Then I found out that there's a book that's about to be published in October And it's been edited by Stephen Williams and Rod Taylor. And I managed to speak with Stephen. And it's a book that's all about MMT and ecological economics. What's what's the name of the book? So the book is called Sustainability and the New Economics. Sustainability and the New Economics. Today I am joined by Stephen Williams, co-editor of a book which has in its title two of my favourite phrases, which are modern monetary theory, which is the school of economic thought that we look at on this show to try and understand what is going on in the world. And then there's also this phrase, ecological economics. So the book is called Sustainability and the New Economics, Synthesising Ecological Economics and Modern Monetary Theory. And I have to admit that ecological economics has taken a back seat in this show, although we always have in the back of our minds this issue that we're all barreling towards, which is this global warming crisis. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thanks, Anne. Happy to be here. Your book features Dr. Stephen Hale and Professor Phil Lorne, who are two of our favourite economists in Australia. Mm, Mine too. Oh, wonderful. So tell us how you um, came into the world of MMT and maybe a bit about your background. Yeah, so my background's mostly in newspaper journalism, starting at the Canberra Times in the year 2000. And then eventually I did a law degree and went to work for the federal government in Canberra, working in employment law. I didn't like that very much and went back to newspaper journalism, specialising in this thing called sustainability. Mm. Then found uh, Phil Lorne's work about five years ago, and he was talking about MMT in the context of ecological economics, and wow, that just blew me away. So many things started to make sense. I think that indicators are very important, probably as importantly as anything else. They help guide policy and action. Professor Phil Lorne. 
developer of the Genuine Progress Indicator, speaking at a Sustainable Prosperity Action Group webinar back in April 2021. The indicators that are available are woeful. And when I say that are available, I'm I'm talking the ones that are more formal indicators that you might see on Australian Bureau of Statistics website and what have you. As good as uh, what the ABS does, I think that the range of indicators are appalling. Uh, and in particular indicators of ecological and social factors, but also of economic welfare. The genuine progress indicator, I've done quite a bit of work on. So the genuine progress indicator doesn't tell us whether we're operating sustainably or not. We need ecological indicators for that. So we do need a suite of indicators. The GPI by itself is not sufficient. So what's sort of indicators of sustainable prosperity do we currently have? I'll point out three of them, which are not being used by governments. One of them's the ecological footprint. Uh, that's an indicator that's calculated by the Global Footprint Network. Biocapacity, very important indicator. Uh, the other that you might be familiar with, particularly if you've been reading a bit about uh, donor economics, is the planetary boundaries. There's nine planetary boundaries that were put together by a number of uh, ecologists. There's another thing called an ecosystem health index put together by Costanza and a few people. But none of these are used by governments. So what's this genuine progress indicator? It's a, it's a macroeconomic, so it's an economic indicator of economic welfare. The GPI estimates the major benefits and costs of economic activity, not just economic benefits. I'm also referring to social uh, and environmental benefits and costs. It gives us a better indication of a nation's economic welfare than GDP. The per capita GDP and the per capita GPI of Australia for the period 1970 to 2016. At the end of 2016, the per capita GPI, so our per capita economic welfare, uh, certainly was much lower than what is represented by per capita GDP. Professor Phil Lorne, with the good news of his discovery that we as a nation reach our optimum well-being or maximum GPI well before we exceed our sustainable GDP. And that's the reason why you need indicators other than the GDP. So I'm guessing this is not a book aimed at the layperson, is that right? It's more of a textbook? Yeah, it's more of a um, academic type book. Stephen Williams. But uh, people can buy individual chapters electronically rather than buying the whole book. Mm. They can just type in the title of the book, um, Sustainability and the New Economics, and that will take them to the publisher's website, publisher being Springer, and eventually the um, individual chapters, I'll be able to buy them. And we'll put in the show notes where people can go to grab hold of those chapters. And I think we've got an excellent product 
and a very timely product given the emergency that Australia and the world is in, emergencies on many fronts. Uh, you mentioned climate change there in the beginning. It's really important at the outset to understand that climate change is merely a symptom of a much larger problem. And the much larger problem is this thing we call overshoot mm. uh, or ecological overshoot. So the planet and indeed every country has a certain biocapacity. It has a certain ability to provide us with raw materials and to absorb our wastes. We have to measure this biocapacity, which we can do fairly accurately, and then we have to limit our ecological footprint to that biocapacity. Um, at the moment, our ecological footprint or the size of our economies, if you like, is way too big. That's why we have these multiple crises that are all interlinked, they're all converging, and things will end very badly if we don't urgently get on top of this. Just give us a bigger picture of what overshoot is and how you look at it. If we look at it on a global scale, humans are currently using the resources of about 1.7 Earths. Mm. We're using 100 billion tonnes of resources a year when really we should be using about 50 billion. At a global scale, somehow we have to manage that descent from 1.7 Earths. Are there going to be any cruise ships in this new world? <laughs> I don't see a single itty-bitty cruise ship. <laughs> uh, I see some life rafts and we'd better get on them. <laughs> Quick smile. Now, you might ask the question, how on earth can economic activity occur at the level that it is if it requires 1.6 Earths, if we've only got one Earth? Professor Phil Lorne. Because we're eating into the stock of natural capital. We're not living off the income provided by natural capital. By natural capital, I'm talking about a nation's forests, water sources, fisheries, soil, mineral stock, sinks and so forth. And, of course, that can only be done for uh, a relatively short period of time. It can't occur indefinitely. And we're very fortunate the Earth is a fairly resilient thing, uh, but only so resilient, and its resilience is declining. So the ecological footprint indicates that if we keep going in the direction that we are, there will be some ecological collapse in the future. It should be motivating action in the present, but it's not. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. We've got to get the size of our economy back within planetary boundaries. Mm. The critical thing, Anne, is to measure this thing I'm calling biocapacity. That's step one. Step two measure our ecological footprint and see whether we're in overshoot or not. And then step three, urgently address any overshoot before things collapse around us. We're as sure of that as we can be as sure of anything. 
ecological footprint and biocapacity are macroecological indicators. And these indicators are designed to determine if we're operating in an ecologically sustainable manner. Professor Phil Lorne. So what is this thing called the ecological footprint? A country's ecological footprint represents the area of land that's required to generate the resources, absorb the waste needed to sustain economic activity at its current level. Whereas a nation's biocapacity, that's indicated by the quantity of land that's available. It's a land that's available to generate an ongoing supply of resources, absorb waste. So the biocapacity represents the nation's capacity to generate and utilise resources on a sustainable basis. So think of ecological footprint as resource demands and biocapacity as sustainable resource supplies. Yeah, Phil Lawn's one of the few economists probably in the world who takes that dual approach of realising that when you combine ecological economics with MMT, suddenly you have more of a complete picture. Neither of them on their own tell us everything we need to know to get to a sustainable situation. We have huge ecological deficits. Everybody knows that. Uh, Would you say like a topsoil deficit or something like that? Yep. A lot of deficits to do with natural environment deficits in biodiversity. Biodiversity is the big one. It's just as important as climate change. They're closely linked. And like I said before, these things are all symptoms of a much greater problem. And if we if we tackle that greater problem, we solve a thousand other problems in the process, including climate change. Mm. It's what we call a no-brainer. <laughs> you know, we, we, can, we can choose a soft landing mm. and increase well-being, or we can choose suicide, basically. It's that serious. So what's our time frame to make that choice? Today, yesterday. I would really like to get your perspective on... The relationships between the MMT community or the modern monetary community and the ecological economics community. We have these two distinct groups. We have the MMT people who focus on macroeconomics, which is a tool we can use to reach our policy objectives, but it doesn't so much tell us what those policy objectives should be. And then we have ecological economists, which are more focused on these kind of big picture issues like where does the economy fit within society and where does society fit within the biosphere? That's where ecological economics is so important. It's better at telling us the policies we should be aiming for. Mm. Let me give you a more concrete example. MMT tells us, yes, we can have full employment. Everyone can have a job. Mm. But it doesn't tell us, for example, what the full-time hours should be. At the moment, we we think, yeah, five days a week, that's a full-time job. Well, why should it be? Working three days a week or 20 hours a week could be a full-time job. Mm. MMT people, they might say things like, well, the government can spend until we've got full employment, then we stop. But 
if everyone's frantically working 40 hours a week, we're still in overshoot, we're still going to collapse. Now, ecological economics can tell us that much better than MMT can. Ecological economics can tell us first what the planet and the nation's biocapacity is. It then tells us what our footprint is. I'm saying we're in overshoot. MMT is not so much concerned with that, although it is certainly aware of those sort of issues because MMT, of course, focuses on real resources. That's the real constraint, not how much money the government collects in taxes. The financial constraint is bogus. (laughs) You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au Donut economics is a popular way of describing ecological economics. Kate Raw was donut economics. Yeah. But I didn't feel like it had the macroeconomics in it that I wanted. And I remain concerned that without the macro, things like the donut labs will go the way of transition towns. They're great ideas, but they'll kind of stall if you don't have federal funding and federal policy behind it. Yeah, look, there's no no perfect book that says it all. Uh, The the criticism you're making of of Kate there, you you could say the same thing about Stephanie Kelton's terrific book, um, The Deficit Myth. It's on a particular subject. It can give people the wrong impression even if they don't have a decent grasp of ecological economics. This is one of the dangers of MMT if it's seen in isolation. Mm. It can say to people, well, there's no financial limit. We just have to worry about inflation and activating all these resources, getting idle resources into production. Yeah, superficially that's true, but hey... What are the real limits? Mm. MMT are not experts in that area. That's why we need ecological economics to be joined, to be synthesized, and it can tell us about the limits. Yeah, I think that's similar to this issue where the, the health of your economy has to do with how much aggregate demand you have, as in how much the total economy is spending. And, of course, it then becomes a whole different question as to how you do that spending. Yeah. (laughs) And I imagine ecological economics would have a lot to say about how we ought to do the spending. Yeah, we could could spend on on bombs or we could spend on renewable energy infrastructure. Once we've worked out how many raw materials we can use in in a given period, then we've got to decide, okay, what's the best use Where should we allocate those things to? We could waste them on (laughs) flim-flam or we could meet our real needs, produce enough food, produce enough renewable energy, uh, health and education, things that people really need to flourish, Mm. not necessarily more cars or more roads. Mm -hmm. Uh, Public transport, yes, please, Uh, especially when we get the pandemic under control. Yeah, ecological economics has a lot to say about that. How do we correctly allocate resources to their best use? 
And once we've done that, how do we then distribute those goods and services in an equitable way? So when you talk about this overshoot, I think that brings up the elephant that's always in the room when you're talking about resources, which is this word growth. That's the monster that we're feeding. It's not just the elephant, it's the monster in the room. We must feed the monster. And so We are slaves to the monster. <laughs> so I was wondering if you could maybe orient us uh, around this issue of growth. Yeah, well, when, when we talk about economic growth, we're normally talking about that GDP number. It's a dollar figure and it's a measure of production. And the politicians and their advisors want GDP to increase every quarter. Mm. They can go to the next election and say, well, Australia has avoided recession for X number of years. You should re-elect us. We're the economic champions. Well, no, they're not. (laughs) They are terrible. That's what we like to demystify on this show is like we need to keep growing the GDP. Why? (laughs) Why? To increase well-being? Well, no. We know the GDP is in no way a measure of well-being, which is really what the economy should be doing for us, increasing well-being. Again, we can measure these things, happiness, well-being, life satisfaction. All of these measurements, they're all useful. They all have a place. Even GDP has its place, but uh, it's not really telling us how successful we are as a society. So GDP measures what a country produces, not what it consumes. Professor Phil Lorne. Uh, now, a lot of people say that you know, GDP is pretty useless. Uh, we should just ignore it altogether. Well, if you want a good measure of national production, it's probably the best measure you can get. GDP was first calculated around about the time of World War II. If you're fighting a war, you're in a war situation, you want to know what the nation's producing. Uh, It was just that after World War II, it was then sort of embraced by politicians, policymakers and economists as some sort of indicator of economic welfare. Although from the point of view of well-being and prosperity is not particularly useful. You won't hear the Australian Prime Minister talk about Australia's Human Development Index, but you'll hear the Prime Minister and perhaps the Treasurer talking about Australia's per capita gross domestic product or GDP. I haven't referred to growth in GDP as economic growth for over 20 years. I refuse to call growth in GDP economic growth. Growth is economic if it increases benefits faster than it increases costs. So uh, GDP growth can be either economic or uneconomic. And if GDP doesn't grow, then they think a recession is just around the corner. Stephen Williams. And a recession is unplanned degrowth or unplanned stasis. Mm, An unplanned degrowth, which doesn't sound very friendly to your average working person. In the rich countries, in the, uh, the OECD countries, most of these countries are going to have to go into degrowth. Mm. And if you say that to an economist or most of them, they will say, oh, this guy wants a recession. What an idiot. That means unemployment. That means bankruptcies. That means suicide. Well, sure, if it's unplanned, it's chaos. Mm. 
But if we want to survive as a species, we have to plan degrowth in many economies. Once you plan for it, it's no longer a recession. It can actually increase well-being if we share the wealth. Okay. There's a limited amount of wealth we can extract from nature. We have to share that wealth so that everyone can meet their basic needs. That's what we have to do. That's the moral position. We're going to get degrowth whether we want it or not. We're going to get unplanned degrowth. If we keep growing, we're going to collapse. That's the lessons of history from the last 12,000 years from when humans invented agriculture. Civilizations collapse. That is the normal thing. So there's no room for growth given this concept of the footprint that you mentioned earlier. If we're talking about growth in terms of the physical world, then we have to face up to the limits and we have to measure them. If we're talking about growth more in terms of education, for some people, spiritual enlightenment or improving our health, yeah, there's usually plenty of room to grow those sort of things Mm. um, that aren't so closely tied to the physical world. But when you're talking about real resources like timber or fish or arable land, we have limited stocks of those things. We can always um, manage them better, you know, less waste, for example. That's really what efficiency boils down to, having less waste in the production process, sure. Is an idea of green growth or sustainable growth, is that uh, a complete furphy? (laughs) It depends. If you're a nation somewhere on the earth where your economy is not too big for your biocapacity, maybe you're Costa Rica, maybe you're Cuba, there's a little bit of room to increase some things. In most countries, there's not much capacity at all. You mentioned planned degrowth. Mm. Will we still have hot and cold running water? (laughs) Yeah. So in in those basic, I guess, uh, levels of standard of living or quality of life, what are they going to look like with planned degrowth? Well, take Australia, for example. Australia is a very wealthy country. There's no shortage of wealth. Even if we were to reduce the size of our economy, reduce GDP, there's still plenty of wealth to go around, more than enough, in fact. And you're talking wealth in terms of resources? Yeah, in terms of goods and services that we produce, that's what matters, not so much the Australian dollar figure. Mm. The amount of stuff we produce, there's more than enough. Uh, If we were to distribute that stuff more fairly and get rid of economic rents, that's where people get stuff they don't earn. Uh, We get rid of those. We make sure everyone in Australia meets their basic needs and we can reduce hours of work. Mm. We can reduce trashing the natural environment. Uh, Yeah, in Australia, there's no problem with everyone having... um, hot showers. (laughs) You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. So I do wonder 
how ecological economics could tell us how many hours a full-time job ought to be? These rather technical things are not things we need to work out um, here today. What I would recommend is that the Australian government, if they were serious about sustainability and avoiding collapse with mass death and mass suffering, they would set up a special commission or authority or even a government department that focuses on this stuff full time. Mm. And they would constantly track what Australia's biocapacity was. They would constantly track what our ecological footprint was. They would, in a very transparent way, tell the Australian people how we were going in terms of sustainability. And these experts would work out what full-time hours should be in this um, sustainability scenario. It just made me realise how awful it is that we don't have a concerted effort figuring this stuff out. (laughs) It's scandalous. That, that we don't. Mm. Australia, like most countries, have signed up to the UN Sustainability Development Goals, which we almost never hear about. No. And journalists never question our politicians about. Officially, yeah, officially Australia does track some of these things, but they're not really interested. <laughs> So most attention uh, is given to economic indicators, almost exclusively to per capita GDP. Some attention is given to social indicators and very little attention is given to ecological indicators. Professor Phil Lorne. And their policy implications are so apparent and in need of appropriate response that they desperately require extensive public attention and discussion, more so than they've had in the past. So if you can talk a bit more about some of these indicators, especially the ecological footprint and the genuine progress indicator, I think that can only move us forward. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. I've heard various versions of this slogan, which is that people aren't destroying the planet, capitalism is destroying the planet. So I was wondering how you would respond to that. We never have a pure capitalism or, say, pure socialism. We're kind of on a sliding scale. And in the neoliberal period, which begins in, say, the mid-70s, we've really slid towards the extreme capitalism end of the spectrum. We need to get back more towards um, some sort of middle ground. Mm. I really like the quote by David Corton, and I'll just read it out. It says, We will prosper when all people are given access to the economy, or we will perish because we have ceded the power to control that access to neoliberal capitalism. Mm. So I was really interested that you have a chapter there on neoliberalism. Neoliberalism, uh, how it got going and why the class of society that got together to undo things like the original New Deal and a lot of the Keynesian reforms. You know, wealth had shifted a bit to the working class through uh, all that good stuff that happened after World War II. 
where wealth was shared more equitably. And of course, a certain class of people didn't like that. Capital class, essentially. Yeah, they worked out a scheme to reverse it. And they just waited for a crisis to put their scheme into action. And the crisis was what happened in the early 1970s. We had the oil crisis or a series of them. We ended up with both inflation and high unemployment. The progressive side of politics didn't know how to deal with it. And that opened the door, as it were, for the neoliberals to come back. And uh, through convincing people like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and eventually people like Bob Hawke and even Mitterrand in France, they, yeah, they got the ascendancy. And we're still dealing with that terrible legacy now. And if people don't understand neoliberalism, you can't really understand the world we live in today. And mm. um, there's an urgent need to reverse uh, all the pernicious outcomes of neoliberalism. And that's a part of the exciting journey that we all should be on. So um, in this whole process we're talking about where we combine MMT with ecological economics, we will dismantle this monster called neoliberalism. Mm. We will undo all these crazy privatizations that we've had to endure. Uh, we will get essential services, natural monopolies as we usually call them, back under government control. We can and should limit the power of corporations by capturing these economic rents where people, clever people, I suppose, get unearned income from things like land speculation. And you make windfall gains just because, say, land is rezoned. You didn't create the land. All you did was uh, sign a bit of paper or whatever and you know, millions of dollars come your way. So that's unearned income. Mm. Uh, the same happens with, say, minerals. You dig up some minerals. Well, you didn't create the minerals. Uh, all you did was dig them up. So sure, you, you can be paid for your work. You, you dug these things up. But really, the value in those, they should be owned by the Commonwealth. Mm. So they're not creating wealth, but they're capturing that wealth simply because we have decided as a society to let them mm. capture it. Well, when you mention uh, the minerals in the ground, my mind immediately goes to the mining lobby, which are very powerful, obviously, and uh, similar to the fossil fuel sector. So, yes, if we understand this is where we need to go, um, how are we going to get there politically? Well, through everyone understanding MMT for a start, because MMT teaches us that the governments have the power. We don't need these big corporations to provide us with tax dollars because governments have no money of their own, which I heard a leading economics journalist say the other day. <laughs> it's a parasite, you know, it has to take money from taxpayers who create all the money. That's the point where you start yelling at the TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you spend the money first, then you collect the taxes later. Mm. Once people learn MMT, they realize the corporations and other rich people, we're not dependent upon them. They're depending upon the government, which created all the money in the first place, created the tax system, created unemployment through creating the tax system. There's no unemployment until you have a tax system, as 
Warren Mosler so beautifully describes it all. Mm-hmm. That's the great thing about MMT. It's so empowering. Mm. What people in Melbourne can do, they can go along to a weekend workshop that Stephen Hale and his friends are running. Mm-hmm. Sustainable Prosperity Action Group. Yep. Go to the website for the action group. They'll see a link to something called um, Rethinking Capitalism. So would you describe that event as a place where ecological economics meets MMT? Stephen Hale wouldn't describe himself as an expert in ecological economics, but he knows enough to um, to move people in the right direction. Mm. We, we know that we can change things for the better really so easily by just getting all this stuff right. It could change people's lives once they understand this stuff. So exciting. It is, it is. I think it's what gives me hope. Yeah, so maybe people are members of an environmental group. They should start asking the environmental group whether they understand this basic concept of overshoot which is so critical. I think too many environmental groups neglect this. Mm. Um, If you're a member of a political party, when you go along to your next meeting, ask them if they understand this concept of overshoot. Because that's really one of the big takeaways I hope people get from this talk we're having, that uh, climate change is only a symptom of a much larger problem, and that's ecological overshoot. Again, there needs to be macro and micro level indicators. Environmental groups tend to focus on things like biodiversity loss, which is really important, of course. Little bits here and there, but they don't often paint a nice overall picture. They're important because they help explain the overall picture. But ultimately, uh, if you've got an indicator that, a macro indicator that can help support your your, your overall message and story. These indicators would help support a lot of the policies that are put forward by a party such as the Australian Greens. Not talking in terms of these indicators is not helping the, the, the Greens because uh, they're left talking about policies in the context of the way everyone talks, and that's in terms of GDP rather than GBI. fascinated that you're saying some environmental groups are not understanding overshoot. So what is it that people are not getting if they're concerned about environmental issues, but they're not getting um, ecological overshoot? There's so many environmental groups out there, and I'm so glad they are. But a lot of them are focused on if we could just save this patch of forest or this marine park here. But really, you might win a battle every now and again, but you're losing the war. Mm. I'm not saying that they should stop doing those things, but they need to put it all in the context of this thing called overshoot. Just in Australia, for example, if every environmental group has been talking about overshoot since even, say, from the Franklin Dam win, when, when the Greens came to prominence, then people would understand this thing a lot better and we'd be harassing our politicians to measure it and to talk about it. But we haven't done that, really. We've tended to be fragmented in these little campaigns to save this, to save that, or to even say, hey, uh, let's do something about climate change. 
yeah, climate change is a symptom of the much bigger problem. Mm. We've all got to concentrate on this mega problem as well as doing these other things. I'm not saying it has to be one or the other. But without that context of the mega problem, we're not going to win the war. And the mega problem is this ecological overshoot where we're using 1.7 Earths. We're heading towards two rapidly. There's a thing called Earth Overshoot Day. And this year it was July 29. And on that particular day, we humans on this small fragile planet had consumed all the resources for the whole year. Mm. And for the rest of the year, what are we doing? We're consuming what we call natural capital. We're destroying the very thing that provides all of our wealth. That's very sobering. July 29. And every year, every year it gets closer. Earlier and earlier. So we have to get that date back to December 31. And so I guess if we had a broader understanding of ecological overshoot, then we would have had this department already in the government whose uh, responsibility was looking at the overshoot and our footprint. We desperately need some kind of independent authority to advise both the government and the Australian people about it. And this is one way we could potentially depoliticize the thing, like the government tried to do with the Reserve Bank. The Reserve Bank is meant to be this independent authority. It sets the cash rate every month and the government can say, oh, well, That's the Reserve Bank, got nothing to do with us, right? It's out of our hands. (laughs) So just the way they sort of do with the pandemic, they're listening to the health experts and they're saying, okay, the health experts have spoken, this is what we have to do. Well, in my vision, this would be the same thing with overshoot. Mm. Whether it's labour, whether it's coalition, whatever, the government could then say, okay, the experts have spoken, We have to do this so the voters can't punish us. We've listened to the experts. Depoliticisation is something that I know Professor Bill Mitchell has criticised a lot as what neoliberalism got away with. But you can actually turn it around and use it. Exactly. Um, I understand that criticism Bill Mitchell makes. It's valid in certain contexts. But, for example, we have the High Court as independent umpires to depoliticize uh, legal judgments, to interpret the Constitution and say whether laws passed by the government are legal or not. Mm. We need to strengthen the public service, which should be full of independent advisors giving frank and fearless advice to government instead of these political operatives that say, hey, the polls are saying such and such, mm. <laughs> you better not do it, ALP. Um, This is why citizens generally despise politicians. In the MMT community, there is a little bit of distrust of a technocratic class because the whole economics discipline would be um, advising things completely counter to what MMT economists would uh, advise. Yeah, they listen to their favourite economists and we're in the mess we're in. Mm. But those advisors don't publish their advice. It's all hush, hush, behind closed doors. So um, what I have in mind, just just the way the High Court published their decisions, people can read them, and they're often dissenting opinions in the High Court. Whereas at the moment, you know, it's all 
terribly untransparent and buried and you know they get reports they don't release it or they release it on new year's eve or something when you know the media's not going to take any interest in it so there's a thousand ways we can improve our public institutions and strengthen democracy because democracy's always under threat Is there anything more about the book or that project that you'd like to add that we didn't cover? Just that the book has quite a large glossary Mm -hmm. uh, where a lot of these terms are defined in plain English. Terms like overshoot, economic rents, and a lot of these technical terms in in economics that just confuse the hell out of people. (laughs) What's quantitative easing, for example? What are these bonds that the government auction every now and again? Globalisation, say, that can mean any number of things to people. Mm -hmm. So for some people, it'd be worth their while just to get hold of the glossary. Yeah, we do say that learning economics is like learning a language, so uh, it's great to have a dictionary or a glossary for that. Rather than explaining every word every time you use it. Yeah, define your terms. Mm. Well, I do appreciate the time that you've given to our show here today. Absolutely fascinating discussion. It's opened my eyes to some basic broad concepts. They're not that difficult to get your head around. And if we just all spend a little bit of time doing that, uh, then we'll be in better shape to meet the future, I imagine. Especially if we keep talking in plain English and uh, don't try and get too fancy with uh, trying to impress each other with jargon okay oh i promise not to go into the jargon battle with you no you've been good (laughs) well thanks very much again steve thank you Anne. there are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3cr news events and programs the 3cr website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt, or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter, at 3CR, and Instagram, at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855AM. Keep in touch, 3cr.org.au. That conversation with Stephen had a really big effect on me because I've been quite naive really about what ecological economics has to offer us. And I can remember having a conversation with Zoltan Bexley back when we could meet up in person. And you know Zoltan. Yes, I know Zoltan. Zoltan's a lovely fella. Hi, Zoltan, if you're listening. And so I remember asking him, what do you think is the biggest issue that we're facing And his typical Bexley cryptic response to me was waste management. (laughs) Waste management. Mm. Waste management. And at the time, uh, we just found out that China didn't want to take as much of Australia's recycling anymore. And so there were all these newspapers and all this clothing and all this glass or whatever building up in these warehouses to the point that some of them started combusting (laughs) here in Melbourne. And so we had those fires in those warehouses. And I thought he was referring to that. But having spoken with Stephen Williams, our guest this week, what I realised was that the global warming issue is a waste management problem. 
because we are putting all this carbon waste into the atmosphere. And it turns out it's about 60% of our waste management problem. And that waste management problem in turn is a problem of ecological overshoot. So now I've got a big picture of how this is fitting together. The thing we seem to forget, Anne, uh, is that everything that we everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we do comes from our environment and we're not considering it in a sustainable fashion. So the, the very thing that, that supports this economic system, this, this way of life that we have, we're not monitoring properly and it's going to come and bite us in the ass really <laughs> bloody soon. I think of our economy or even our civilization as like this giant beast roaming the landscape and it's just munching up everything it can get hold of, all these plants and these rocks and these minerals, and it's turning them all into things like, I just look around in my room here, you know, cushions where they have cotton and dyes in them and, you know, into spoons. I've got spoons made of metal. All of these things were once trees and bushes and rocks and earth. And so our civilization just metabolizes the environment. And then at the other end, it's eliminating its wastes or doing these great big poos into the oceans and into the atmosphere and eliminating this waste out the other end. Yeah, but we take from it, but, but we, need to, we need to give back to the earth. Uh, but the two, uh, the, the environment and the economy, uh, are, are joined at, at the hip. And at the moment, the hip's a bit broken. <laughs> You know, it's so broken that what I realized from my conversation with Stephen that really opened my eyes was that we are doing nothing to deal with overshoot, with ecological overshoot. So it would be as though the COVID pandemic struck us and we were sitting there with no hospitals. We hadn't even bothered to build them. We hadn't bothered to train medical people. We hadn't bothered to do any medical research. So we had no testing laboratories, no vaccine manufacturers. And that is pretty much how we're set up to deal with ecological overshoot. The, the management of any society, any economy, any project, you have to look at the inputs versus the outputs and you have to make sure that the job's going to work out with a positive result. So while we've got all these little micro projects going on, these micro economies, countries and companies and corporations, etc., who are all managing their projects to make sure that they're profitable or that there's a positive outcome, the big project, the whole project, which is called the Earth in which we live, <laughs> Project Earth, is not being managed. And the models that we incorporate, the um, the economic models that we have in capitalism, and especially under neoliberal capitalism require us to accumulate wealth, as much wealth as we possibly can. So you end up with people like Jenna Reithart becoming enormously wealthy by extracting a natural resource with no consideration of what happens to that natural resource, the way that it's uh, extracted, the, where it's sent to, what it's turned into, what the byproducts of that are. None of that is considered. The only thing that's considered is that Gina Reithart makes money, and that's our economic model. <laughs> exactly. And because if Gina makes money, we're all supposed to make money, and that's supposed to be good for the economy. You know, these issues of unplanned degrowth and ecological collapse, they're enough to make anyone want to stay in bed. <laughs> and um, I've been thinking about 
young people dealing with these lockdowns at the moment because I've been hearing that they're suffering a bit of despair and depression and I think well that's perfectly understandable response to these issues Mm. that their whole lives have been put on hold and they can't hang out with their buddies and they can't celebrate their milestones birthdays they can't have their graduation so if I was a young person I would think things were looking pretty rough at the moment. And I have those moments myself, but I also, the reason, Kevin, that I'm doing this show is because I've learned that our economics gives us reason to hope. It actually gives us some realistic tools. It's not just naive optimism, like there is reason to hope. And one of those things is what Phil Lorne has to say, which is that when you do the measurements, you realize you can reach your optimum economic well-being before you get to unsustainable GDP. In other words, we could have economic well-being within the ecological footprint. Yeah. And the other thing is what MMT tells us. It's a very simple message. And I think if um, there was one thing you walk away with understanding about MMT, it would be this, which is if you have the ability to do something, then you can always find the money to pay for it. So finding the money is never the problem if you have the resources and the ability. So, for example, if you happened to know how to get to 100% renewables in less than 10 years, or if you happen to know how to grow your food in a regenerative way and not an extractive way, and if you happen to know how to build lovely homes that have low carbon footprints, you know, if you happen to know how to do all that, Finding the money is never the problem. And this is what the economists call, they have this funny little way of talking about this. They call it functional finance, if you ever want to look it up. And so MMT tells us that functional finance is completely realistic. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org. People say, oh, well, what can I do? You know, I'm just one person. And I was thinking, Kevin, let's look at it this way. What would you do if you're in lockdown or even just out of lockdown and you wanted to make music? I jump on GarageBand. I've got a microphone and, and, uh, and I make all sorts of stuff, which is probably totally unlistenable to a lot of people, but it makes me feel good. But, uh, you know, you start delving into yourself. Yeah, so the first thing you do, you'd probably teach yourself how to play an instrument or how to use the technology. So the first thing you've got to do is do things at an individual level, and that's about education and growing your skill set. So if you're thinking about the environment, you're going to learn some MMT, I hope, and learn some ecological economics. It's not that difficult. And you'd want to get together with some buddies and maybe form a band or whatever. Well, we are social creatures, so that's very important. Mm. You've got to act at both an individual and at a collective level. So in the environmental movement, we've seen that, for example, with Schools Strike for Climate, people get together and do stuff and they have much more impact then. You might also want to think about things at a national or global level. And that means looking at how this capacity of the government, how its public purse is being used. You might want to figure out who your representatives are and what kind of decisions they're making on your behalf. How many politicians out there do you think at the moment would be willing to say in public, everyone has to give up cruise ships because we're trying to avoid ecological collapse? 
And if they're not willing to say that, they need to hear it from us. <laughs> I'll tell you my experience of being in a couple of political organisations or any of these sort of uh, uh, groups where you're thinking about the bigger picture is that what is very typical is they're always dominated by people with a lot of grey hair uh, and who are generally into their retirement uh, years because young people are too busy, <laughs> which is why it's terrific to see groups like the uh, the AYCC. That We need a, a lot more of that energy. And there's a whole bunch of things coming up soon. So we've still got the Sustainable Prosperity Action Group. Uh, hopefully they'll be putting together their Rethinking Capitalism. Just Google Sustainable Prosperity Action Group and look out for that. It may get postponed again. It may go online due to COVID, etc. But But uh, just keep an eye out for it. And also... Modern Money Australia, who we are connected with, Kevin, they are putting on a webinar soon with Victor Klein, who we've spoken with on this show. Victor Klein from the New Liberals. From the New Liberals. Yep. They'll be speaking with him on October 6th at 7.30pm. So all the progressives, uh, progressive lefties who are very uh, sceptical of a, an organisation called the New Liberals <laughs> can actually hear Victor speak himself. Yeah. You can get there and ask him your own questions. We do like political parties that support uh, progressive economics and have a social conscience, and Victor is, seems to be one of these people. And so that's free to go to. So just look up Modern Money Australia or go to modernmoneyaustralia.org and you'll be able to register to be part of that online event. One thing that um, uh, Stephen was talking about, which I've touched on before and which I think is a very uh, interesting point, and he says that MMT gives you part of the picture, um, but then you have the uh, economic... The ecological economics. Ecological economics. You combine the two and you get a, a much better rounded picture. And if you have a certain amount of resources, and, and part of that resource being uh, human input, human labour, uh, how much human labour do you need... Uh, to sustain yourself these days. And we've become very automated and very clever at doing things with all these you know, dishwashers and, and uh, conveyor belts and robots and all sorts of stuff. So the idea that a full-time working week might be 20 hours a week is something that really needs to be promoted. We need to question how long the working week is. I'm not exactly sure how to approach that one because I'm not sure if we need all hands on deck for the ecological crisis. But if we don't then when we talk about well-being, I can see a three-day working week contributing to people's well-being. Three days on, four days off, brilliant. Every weekend's a long weekend. And, and it sounds far-fetched, but John Maynard Keynes was talking about this in the 30s. This is not a new concept. Why can't we survive on a, on a shorter working week? And I think it could be pretty easily introduced via a job guarantee. If you set your job guarantee at three days a week then all of the rest of the private sector would have to follow suit. Ooh, revolutions in the street would be terrific. <laughs> <laughs> Which might be why they're not so keen on a job guarantee. <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. Anyway, lovely thoughts for the future. So there's some hope. Like we are really so close to a much better way of doing things. So now a, bu a bunch of progressives like you and I and all of our listeners, because they, they have to be progressive, otherwise they wouldn't be listening to us. If we come up with a bunch of new ideas, then the world could be a very different place in the next 30, 40 years. Mm. Anyway, Anne, uh, we have another show coming up. Mafalda is coming up next and uh, we'll do it again soon. Hey, Kevin, can't wait. See you then. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR. Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests 
And I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. No, 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 the pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine. You mean all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself. So if you've got all the pleasure, then what, I had no, I had no pleasure? I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, like, I don't mind you having the pleasure. That's great. So have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you and it was You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.